Welcome to the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. Your source for coyote hunting, fishing, and more. We're calling West Texas, and we're filming, and we called 36 coyotes in one night. Two years ago, three years ago, I had in one morning six bucks that were three and a half and older within 50 yards of my stand. Six different bucks one morning. It was in October. Went made my first coyote stand, me and my cousin. And uh, very first freaking stand, guys, we called up seven coyotes. <laughs> seven coyotes. Florida itself is a fisherman's paradise. We stick out in the middle of the water, man. There's water everywhere. Let's kick it in the overdrive. This podcast brought to you by Predator Hunter Outdoors. Locally owned and operated out of Attica, Michigan, Predator Hunter Outdoors will keep you hunting when the sun goes down. Predator Hunter Outdoors has something for every budget and experience level, including lights, night vision, and thermal, as well as a full line of tripods, mounts, and predator calls. Look them up on Facebook and Instagram at Predator Hunter Outdoors, or visit their webpage at www.predatorhunteroutdoors.com. Enter the promo code LIGHT for 20% off light products, and TRIPOD for 10% off tripods and mounts. With today's technology, hunters in the field have more tools than ever to maximize their outdoor experiences. One of those tools is a Grand Rapids, Michigan-based HuntWise app. The HuntWise Pro app is loaded with features including property lines, landowner data, windcast, huntcast, over 250 map layers including 3D maps, a localized rut indicator, as well as discounts of 20% off various name brand products. Step up to the Elite membership and you will get all of that plus HuntCast 2.0 with customizable alerts, Whitetail 365 which gives you season dates and local rut times as well as the best time to plant your food plots, a 15 day hunt forecast and 40-50% to 50% discount on name brand products. Enter code OVERDRIVE for 20% off your membership to HuntWise. Welcome back everybody to the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. Tonight I am recording with, I mean, in my book, he's like the green giant, the jolly green giant. I've only met this man one time, but we've had so many conversations over the years, probably for like 10 years now, I would say, about about deer and deer hunting, APRs, one buck tag versus leave me alone. Mr. Elliot Hubbard, how in the heck are you? Oh, I'm doing good, buddy. I'm doing good. How are you? Um, still feeling kind of like a zombie from my 24 and a half hour day yesterday hunting the coyote tournament for uh, Sports Persons Ministries, but I slept for like 12 hours yesterday, so I feel pretty good, but man, that kind of beat the crap out of you. The older you get, the harder that is. Oh, uh, you know, and I, I chuckle because it seems like every time you get in a tournament, you got gale force wins every oh, time. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. They don't want us to win, so so I figure they just make the conditions difficult. But there was actually, in a 24-hour hunt, there was, I think it was 106 predators brought in. Nice. That's a lot of coyotes, and I think it was 46 teams. So Yeah, I, know, I noticed, you know, like uh, Matt Schott comes out here and hunts. Yep. You know, it seems like this area for whatever reason in the the late spring through like early fall we hear them out in the distance you know the coyotes and stuff like that 
Man, I tell you what, this time of year, it gets ridiculous. I, I don't know if it's because we got the swamps, you know, around the farm and they're using them for, you know, their denning cover and stuff because it's cedar blowdown. But it seems like every night in all sorts of directions. But, you know, it, it's just crazy how those predators can just move in their giant circles oh, yeah. and, you know, it, it, they can cover some serious ground. Well, and based on what I know about your farm, you've got a lot of deer on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you ask some of the neighbors, we killed them all. Oh, that's true. That's why I was kind of thinking that might be why the coyotes are there, because there's like 57,000 gut piles or something, according to your neighbors. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, and it's and, and that's that I, I laugh. It's like, you know, these same neighbors that complain about us shooting all these does are the same people that won't let anybody come in and trap the coyotes. You know, I'm the one that's causing their deer hunting to suffer, yet they won't allow anybody to do the coyotes. They don't do any habitat improvement. You know, it's – and then they're out on their four-wheelers all the time. But I'm the bad guy. Well, yeah, we're all the bad guy. <laughs> Anytime somebody else's hunting doesn't work out, it's somebody else's fault. Amen to that. <laughs> now, I have kind of a bone to pick with you a little bit here. Uh -oh. If I could reach through the phone, get on top of a stool, I might smack you. <laughs> you were recently on the Generations to Hunt podcast with Joe Davis. Mm -hmm. And you talked about APRs with him, one buck tag, uh, quite a few different things. But in there, there's a line that sticks in my mind. Public land hunters are just lazy. Elliot, I will kick your butt. <laughs> so... You have to take that, you know, that is a generalized statement when I say that. But overall, in general, and I mean, you've seen it, you're a public land guy. Mm -hmm. You're a minority. In all reality, granted, you know, the public land guys or the, the, the hunting public guys, Dan and Fulton, they're following, has changed the public land hunting dramatically over the last probably five years. Yep. There are more guys, you know, running, gunning, pushing deeper in and stuff like that. But if you really think about it in the overall aspect of it, there's so many guys. I mean, you go in state public land parking lots, especially after gun season, they're absolutely trashed. There's garbage all over the public land. You know, guys that'll that'll literally hunt off off the two tracks. But at the same token, though, like I stick. I'm very blunt with what I say, but at the same time, it's it's a fact. Public land sucks because of the public land hunter. Mm -hmm. It is all of our resource. That is, that's not, you know, like, yeah, I own 118 acres of land. I pay taxes on it. That's my land. But public is all of our land. That's for all of us to enjoy. And if you want better hunting and you want a better public ground, it starts with you, the individual. Mm -hmm. But it, it, you can't rely on or waiting for the next person to do it for you. It starts with you. And when one person does it, if you had that mentality, well, I can't control so-and-so, but I can control me, and I want a better hunt. If all the public guys had that, public land wouldn't be what it is today, at least in Michigan. Yeah. You know, you look at all these other states, and you go on to public, and those public guys take really good care of their public ground. Now, there are some slob hunters. There always will be. But as a general statement, man, I, how can you – how can you not agree that public land is the way it is because of it's not because of the DNR. No, I didn't say I don't agree. <laughs> there's, there's definitely parts to it that are, 
I mean, I get lazy sometimes and honestly, I wouldn't even necessarily, it's not always about lazy to me. A lot of it is that I feel like a lot of guys don't, like how long did it take me to learn how to do what I'm doing? And some of the guys just haven't out, haven't stepped outside of that boundary. I feel like a lot of it's that, but you know, when I'm like scouting the public land and stuff, I don't mind finding all these guys tree stands that they leave up because they're too lazy to go get them down. Or that's their one spot because every time I find one, I mark it on my map. And almost every time you mark enough of them on your map, you can find that one spot that everybody's working around. And I kind of like those spots. So, I mean, whether it's lazy or just doesn't want to step outside their own box, I, it is what it is. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's, there's quite a bit of potential on our public lands. And like you said, a lot of the guys have opened up the, you know, shown what public land can do. And you knew, you know, along uh, 2017 until then I had a lease and I was always talking to you about that property. But in order to get to that lease, I was driving past how many thousands of acres of public land that I technically already own because I'm a Michigan state resident. I pay taxes. It's my land. And as soon as I lost that lease, I was like done with private pretty much. I mean, public's what I got. There's tons of it around. There's plenty for everybody to share. That's one thing that turns people off though, is when you pull up to a parking lot and there's 10 cars in the driveway for sure. Well, and, and you know, part of what I said though, on the other podcast was, you know, uneducated as well. And, mm -hmm. and you hit, you know, that's that stepping outside that box, you know, um, I remember those conversations, you know, I, you were trying to figure out where to put a food plot on that lease, yep. had it all figured out, and then you ended up losing that lease. But even after you were hunting the public, you know, you and I shared a lot of conversations on, you know, based on your trail cam pictures, you know, game planning, you know, brainstorming with each other, you know, and you grew as a hunter. And, and yeah. that's, you know, one thing that I'm, uh, I'm big on is on that education that, that, progression as a hunter progressing your skill you know and there it, it does scare a lot of people though because mm -hmm. you, you find what as much as we love our our, our old heads our, our grandparents and our even our our, our, our dads you find out a lot of what we thought we knew is is not the case <laughs> yeah. and, and it's hard to change that mentality but that's also why we have people that support one buck that's why aprs come up that's why hunter's choice comes up because change is so difficult for people to do without the regulation changes. Yep. Now, when APRs, when did APRs first get introduced to the state? Oh, I want to say it was like 2000, 2000 or 2001. Um, Clare County actually did a hundred or not a hundred choice. actually did an APR. Um, that sunset was removed. Um, then the, the northeast lower, like the TB zone area, had a hybrid system, which is called Hunter's Choice. So if it's a single tag, you can shoot whatever you want. If you buy the combo tag, uh, it had to follow the APR 3.4 point because it's in zone two. Um, that was removed by the DNR because, like CD CWD, the DNR has this notion that older bucks are bad. It showed that, you know, the hunter choice did increase antlerless harvest, not quite to the degree APR, but we're protecting older bucks and they 
show a higher prevalence of TB, so they got rid of it. And then in 2012 is when, um, actually it was before that, I want to say it was like 2008, uh, Leelanau County, and which is the original county for the Northwest 13, got their APR. 2012 is when the Northwest 13 became the Northwest 13. And you were a major part in that, correct? Not in the Northwest 13. Okay. Um, I came on to, uh, so for the longest time I was with uh, uh, Proud Michigan Hunter. Uh, after that, uh, that's when I found Michigan uh, Deer Hunters, let them go, let them grow. Got with Lincoln about 2013. Um, so after the Northwest uh, 13 became into fruition, uh, Lincoln um, created a proposal to try to make the rest of the uh, Lower Peninsula APR that went through in 2016. I was there for that one. And then I was a part of the Thumb 5 proposal, which was here on Tuscola, Sanilac, Lapeer, and St. Clair counties. And what was that proposal for? That was a AP, uh, traditional APR. Uh, so uh, zone one, which is the UP, is a no spike rule. Zone two is a 3.4 point APR. Zone three is a 4.4 point APR. Um, so that's what that was, was just your traditional, nothing else attached to it, straight APR. Okay. And when we introduce or talk about antler point restrictions, what is the main goal of an antler point restriction? Because as far as anybody's ever heard from most of the people that are the loudest in the APR debate is it's only for bigger bucks. So that's, that's a fallacy to a degree. Um, so what an APR is designed to do is increase the incentive uh, on antlerless harvest uh, because you are restricting what bucks can be shot. So uh, for the guys that want their meat, want to fill the freezer, it puts more incentive on taking antlerless. Um, the other thing is that APRs protect 50% of the yearling cohort. So it's not 50% of the harvest it is truly 50 percent of all yearlings so that's taking into consideration uh car deer accidents winter kill predation uh and hunter kill so all you're doing is shifting that pressure to the two-year-olds you're you're increasing your age by one year essentially you're you're moving it from the year and a half to the two and a half and so what is the main goal of changing it by a year because <laughs> this this episode is going to be fun <laughs> if i go out and shoot a two-year-old follow apr standards which we talked about for a long time and mm -hmm. i started doing that in a non-apr zone you and i basically made a deal that i wouldn't shoot anything i don't remember what it was six pointers eight, or, big, or, eight or bigger out to the ears i'll never forget that eight or eight or bigger out to the ears unless i think we agreed that if it was a big six when you first started if it was oh. a, a big six you're you're going for it i would disappoint you in a heartbeat over a big six point i do not care <laughs> so you you increase it by one year and then you shoot a two-year-old and you're still going to get just as bitched at as if you would have shot a year and a half old so that's the thing people gotta stop the beauty of social media is it it does allow a lot better outreach and especially on the education side of it but it also allows those 
guys to be that way. But you have guys on both sides of the equation, right? Mm-hmm. Because I get it too for I'm I'm getting it on the other side where you know I'm a trophy hunter. All I'm all I'm after is antlers. It must be nice to have land. You know, the, the squeaky wheel gets gets the grease, and that's who you hear the most of are those guys that bash the little. You know me, I'll never bash somebody for what they shoot. Which they want to shoot spike. That's why that? I've always respected you about this. You you have been the only person that will have a conversation about this stuff without cutting everything down about it. I mean, when I was shooting year and a half deer, year and a half old bucks, every time one would walk by and give me a shot and I had a legal tag, I was shooting it. And it was never, oh, just imagine what that could have been next year. That's 90% of what it was. But you come in and, hey, you know, great buck. And then you go on and explain a difference, you know, of if you could have let that go or just think had this have happened or, you know, there was always an explanation without a belittlement coming with it. And that's why I've always been willing to have a conversation about this with one person in particular. And that's you, because it doesn't ever feel like it's a I'm not talking to a wall that's stuck in one position, you know. And, and that's the education side of things, right? So if I tell you you're an idiot or you suck at hunting or, you know, trashing you, you're never going to, you're never going to come to the other side because you're going to go, I don't want to, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be a part of that. Um, that was one thing that actually floored me or blew my mind. So um, the thumb five proposal, uh, Tom Lounsbury and Bob Walker were the two biggest guys against the APR. They were with the United Sportsmen's Alliance. And um, they came up to me after the meeting in Ubley, and both of them said, you know, that they were very thankful because the meetings, the first time the Thumb had a proposal go through, there were those people from the LPDMI and others that if you don't support APRs, you're an idiot. Stop shooting a little dink box. You're not, you're not a hunter if you're killing little box type situation. Mm-hmm. So us going into this proposal, we knew – the, the, the cards were stacked against us to a degree. But what we did is instead of telling people that they're idiots, we gave them all the data, gave them all the information, gave them the, the perks of, of the biological advantages and perks to the APR. We allowed the other side, the opposing side, to say their side, you know, give their, their facts and datas. You know, it was a, a, a debate back and forth, but the respect was was maintained and it allowed people to make a decision for themselves, mm-hmm. you know. And then when I was part of that uh, work group for the APRs at the Ram Center, um, Tom and Bob actually came up to me and said, you know, if the first proposal would have went through the thumb and they treated it like you guys treated the second one, they're like, we would have never been able to stop the second APR uh, proposal from going in because, the first one burned so many bridges that people just didn't want to listen to the data because they were already still remembering the first go. Mm-hmm. So you know what, what, I mean? what was the opposition that was there at those meetings? So the biggest, the two biggest things was CWD and the, my tag, my choice, you know, because they felt that we were taking that away from the hunter and to a degree. They're right. We are taking the ability to, kill some yearlings and for um, anybody listening to this that's where i'm at i mean that's the side i agree with and you know that <laughs> so i would be more open to so here's my thing right so this year 
So I talked to a couple more neighbors. We killed 68 does this year between oh. and that's in that's in a so just so people know it's not just on my land. Yep. This is you're, we're talking over a course of about a mile and three quarter square. Okay. We shouldn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And if people would kill more does and even on the on, on the yearling side of it, right? You know, we wouldn't be having these conversations or these debates if, if the antlerless harvest was better. Because that's the, the, the biological advantage to an APR by data is when you reduce herd densities, because you can't reduce you can reduce some herd density by killing bucks, but if you want to reduce densities, you have to do it by the antlerless harvest. So you bring that down. So now you're providing better cover, better food availability, not only for deer, but for all wildlife Mm -hmm. so that the habitat can sustain the wildlife to its maximum potential. But you also balance the age structure across the board on does because you're increasing the doe harvest. So you're bringing the age class of does down. You're increasing the buck. So that changes the social dynamics, the social structure of the herd uh, to more natural balance because whether you believe in God or evolution, if man wasn't involved, you'd have a balanced herd across the board. The other aspect that it does, and I don't care what anybody says. You're Hang on just a second. You're saying basically if, if hunting stuff like that wasn't around, it would be a one-to-one buck-to-doe ratio? Is that you'll, never you see, you'll never see in the natural herd, you'll never see one-to-one. You'd okay. probably see uh one buck for every two to four doe depending on the area but it's constantly going to do this it's it's constantly going to go up and down um the better the habitat the more deer can sustain the higher the deer the doe densities become but then that's when the predation comes in the coyotes come in wolves whatever it may be knocks that back down um you have you know ehd which is a natural disease for deer 2012 was a prime example it wiped out a lot of deer Mother nature is going to take care of herself, whether we like it or not. And 2012 was a great example of that. So on a natural cycle, you're going to see one buck for every two to four does, you know? So, um, but the other thing it does is on the social side of it for humans, right? So I don't care what anybody says, you know, my first buck was a yearling six point. I was excited as I'll get out, but there was no feeling like putting a tag on a 162-inch nine-point. There was no feeling like that first big boy, that 140-inch buck that I shot in Ohio, that eight-point, clean eight-point. You know, um, when I was in Illinois in 2015 and seeing, you know, the first buck I laid eyes on was a 150-inch eight-point, just this monstrosity. And the only reason I didn't shoot him is because I knew there was a 200-incher out, and 20 minutes later I lay eyes on this 200-inch monstrosity. Yep. That feeling that you get, everybody wants that. I mean, everybody you talk to talks about those big bucks, right? Yep. So the other thing is with the APR is, yes, you the APR is designed to increase buck age by one year, but it also is trying to change the mindset from a hunter-gatherer to a hunter-manager. So then when there's more two-year-olds across the board, people are going to start then seeing more three-year-olds. 
And so then they start shooting three-year-olds and then all of a sudden they start seeing four-year-olds and that cycle continues to paint out. Um, the Northwest 13 is a prime example. What the Northwest 13 had going for it and what it turned into is night and day difference. Yep. Now, why the difference in APRs? Why why some a three-point on one side and some a four-point on one side? So the DNR did a study, I want to say it was, it was late 80s, early 90s. Um, it's an older study, but per the APR regulations, it has to protect 50% of the yearling cohort. So in the UP, they determined that was a no-spike rule. Um, for the, the north, uh, the northern lower, so zone two, um, it was a three point on one tag, four point on the second tag and zone three is that they determined it had to be a four point, four point APR. Now, is that because of data showing that most bucks killed were spikes in the UP down here? They were four or six points. Um, there, so you had that part, the harvest was taken into it, but the biologists put the boots to the ground. Okay. You know, they're, they're doing, they're doing their surveys. They're, they're, they're logging data and by visual, visual, you know, looks, the harvest, everything. That's how they determined it. There's a, the study is actually fascinating. I mean, they took and they did a pile of work, brought all the data in and came up with, with the regulations. And pretty accurate data. You think? <sighs> For zone one and zone two. Yes. Okay. One thing that they couldn't take into consideration then, like they can now, is our ag. And, I mean, I remember as a kid, we used to get snowstorms all the time. We're a dump a foot, foot and a half of snow. We don't have and any snow right now. we're sitting in the middle of January, and there ain't no snow on the ground. Right. So, as the winters become milder, um, ag is getting better. I mean, shoot, when I started on the farming side of it, you know, you were doing good if you hit 200, 220 bushel an acre, and now you're doing good hitting 300, you know. So as as farming is evolving, this food, there's more readily available food. You're starting to see these deer coming out of winter better. They express themselves, the fawns have the, the ability to express themselves better. I don't know as if zone three, it's still 50, 50%. But I think in zone two and zone one, it protects far more than 50% versus zone three. I think it's closer to that 50%. Okay. And you mentioned a couple of times bringing the doe, the age of the doe group down. What is the benefit of doing that? So <clears throat> older does tend to fight very viciously um, for the best habitat. So if you're looking at, you know, winter survivability of your bucks, some of your does, um, when you bring those those age structures down, you tend to not have as much heavy um, competition. The other aspect of it is by studies, uh, Dr. James Kroll and Wayne Sitton did this in the Turtle, uh, Turtle Lake Club uh, study, and then they studied across uh, the country. Uh, your older does tend to only have single fawns but after that that three-year-old so four and older they tend to have far more doe fawns and the survivability is better because them old girls know how to make it through winter yeah so what tends to happen then is your doe densities continue to skyrocket because instead of pushing out two bucks or a buck and a doe them older girls are just pushing out predominantly more doe fawns so, and, and 
the doe fawns don't disperse like what the buck fawns do. So that doe group then only becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. The other aspect of it is you have to look on the disease side of things, right? So I had mentioned in the other podcast and it's spot on. If you're, if you're fighting CWD, you got to treat it like cancer. The bucks are your cancer cell. Your doe groups are your tumors. The older and bigger the tumor gets, the more cancer cells it's pushing out. So then now as these bucks are coming into these, these doe groups, now the bucks are getting exposed to CWD. And then they go to this other doe group that may not have had CWD in it. Now they expose that doe group. And now say one doe has CWD and then now the doe fawn has it and the next doe gets it because the doe groups are very social groups. So when your groups get bigger and your old does continue to walk on the horizon with CWD, they're just spreading the CWD. Mm-hmm. I so, thought it was just bait piles that spread CWD. I'm so I'm glad you brought that up. Um <laughs> He so, just took a deep breath. <laughs> you know me, I'm I, I'm a big food plotter. And this, this goes back to the whole young buck thing. It drives me absolutely nuts that we're going to sit here and have this pissing match because some guy decides they want to bait or not. But the guys that are doing the pissing match are hunting under apple trees, they're hunting under pear trees, they're planting their food plots, they're hunting an ag. It's the same damn thing. And it drives me nuts. But the DNR cannot show studies that they can 100% say that a bait pile causes the spread of disease. Yep. If they did, then Ohio would have banned it. Iowa would have banned it. Kansas would have banned it. Michigan should have banned it in the UP, but they didn't. But yet, a guy that's in, you know, northern Sheboygan County or by Mackinac City can't bait, but they're farther away from cwd than guys in the up well the problem is it's all camp bait but there's so much bait out in the woods (laughs) there is but so here's my thing though josh so i have you know i have a tractor i have a three-point spreader so you're telling me that a guy with an eighth acre clover plot isn't spreading disease potential more than what i could filling my 500 pound spreader with corn and broadcasting that over five, six acres. You're mm-hmm. telling me that me doing that is worse than a guy with an eighth acre clover? I'll call bullshit. Yep. Now, I will agree with them on the bigger plots. You're, if you're talking a, a seven, eight, nine acre food plot or an ag field, yeah, them deer are spread out. They're, you're not going to have the concentration. Right. But again, there's no study showing that that bait pile increases the probability of CWD. And until yep. they can prove that 100%, let people freaking bait and let them bait whatever they want to. If they want to bring in a dump truck worth of sugar beets, if they can afford it, by all means. <laughs> I've I've talked to a couple people about baiting. I wouldn't do it anymore because I'm a public land guy. I I just feel like you're just gonna draw attention to where you want to be, and you know how I hunt. I don't really need it. I see deer just fine. But bait for me would be beneficial to be able to have it somewhere and take my boys out and say, look good chance we're at least going to see a deer tonight Mm -hmm. and and it would draw their attention much more to know that that chance was way better because there was a reason for those deer to be there rather than just going off of what we've scouted and where we're hoping they're going to be and you know there's just something i always had fun hunting over bait piles growing up that's how we always did it and it was always you you always were seeing deer if there was deer around and that's the only reason i miss it is because of my kids 
I started over bait piles. You know, I think, I think probably 99% of the guys our age and older were on bait piles. The other aspect of it though, too, you know, I, I won't, I'll admit it. I'm after the biggest buck that's in the woods. I don't want to shoot a buck. That's not four and a half and older. And you know, I love shooting them big boys. So then it takes the ability to supplemental feed. I'm not supplemental feeding because the deer need it to survive. I'm supplemental feeding because I want to give my, our deer, because deer don't know about boundary lines, but I want to give our deer the best ability to express their full potential doe or buck. And I can't do that unless I'm planting a bunch of food plots, you know, timbering off. I think we're timbering 20 acres off just for woody browse, okay. you know. But not everybody has that ability to do those things. And now you're taking that away from them. Yeah, if I go in with a chainsaw in public, I'll get in some trouble. <laughs> unless unless you get the permit for the deadfall. <laughs> well, it would, it would only be dead after I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you like to plant food plots. What's your favorite kind of food plot to plant to uh, to draw the deer for your hunting? So I'm, I'm, I want tonnage. So, um, John Comp at Northwoods Whitetail has a, a, a blend that we kind of put together, you know, as a combination, but he's got a fall forage that's uh winter peas, rye, oats, and wheat. Um, he calls it the fall forage plus. So it's rye, oats, wheat, peas. And then I add crimson clover, red clover, and either a radish or early maturing brassica. So I got food from early season, mid season, late season, through winter, first of spring, through spring, in through summer, and then I replant it again. And like so, literally, I have a I have green growing food in that plot year long. Perfect. Seems to draw a lot of deer too, based on pictures you've sent me. Oh yeah. <laughs> so moving on from the APRs, then the next conversation is one buck tag for Michigan and it's been pushed mm -hmm. harder probably in the last four months than I've seen it ever in, in my hunting in Michigan. So where does, what, what's your thoughts on one buck tag for Michigan to start out? So I would, I I'm, I'm all for one buck myself. Um, there's a lot of people that go, well, we had it before, which is true. We had it and you know, up until the mid eighties um, and 70% of the, the buck shot were yearlings, which is accurate because there one buck cannot and does not protect yearling bucks like the APR does. So then there's the thought notion that, you know, one buck's going to make people more selective. Well, back in the seventies and eighties, people were truly sustenance hunting. Still you, what you shot is what you ate. You fed your family on it. Mm -hmm. Well, as hunting has evolved, the older crowd, God love them, but they're as they're dying off. That's our meat hunter crowd. The people that are getting replaced with the younger generation, the younger guys don't look at it necessarily as the meat buck. They're looking at it as they want that big buck. Me, I'm a trophy hunter, but I am a meat hunter. Uh, I've said it before. I'd rather put my tag on a four and a half year old buck than a year and a half old buck, because if I'm going to get most bang for my buck, I would rather slap a tag on a deer that's going to give me 70 to 90 pounds of meat versus 30 to 40 pounds of meat. That's just me. Um, so one buck, I feel, would change Michigan positively. There's no biological thing that says one buck wouldn't work. 
um, or one buck is a would have a detrimental or negative impact on the herd. It is going to bring antlerless harvest down, or sorry, it is going to increase antlerless harvest, bringing the densities down, and it probably will make more buck or more hunters selective on what they shoot because, I mean. Are you going to want to go out and uh, you see that first yearling six point opening day of bow season? You really want to shoot that first yearling buck and go, well, now I won't be able to hunt a buck for the rest of the season. You are like <laughs> me where you'll kill does, but most people are going to think that. Um, no, but I mean, I've personally myself grown out of that and it wasn't by force of hand on any government signing any kind of a bill saying you can or cannot. Well, let me ask you this. Had you and I not had the conversations that we did, do you think you would have changed the way you did when you did? Probably not when I did. I mean, it, it pushed me into it, but I was to that point where I was not having any trouble killing deer. And and I think that's a huge part of it, too. Like, there is, and maybe this goes back to the lazy conversation, but there is people who literally... If they pass up a deer, that might be the only deer they get all, they get an opportunity on, you know? I don't go into the woods worried about that because I I just hunt different. So people talk about like, well, I only got one weekend to hunt, right? Or opening day gun season, I only got, you know, opening day and maybe a day here or there. Well, my schedule, especially since COVID hit, I don't hunt that much. I don't have the ability to hunt. My freezer's still full. Mm-hmm. Your freezer's still full, and you don't kill. Even if you don't kill a buck, your freezer's still yep. going to be full. Yep. Because you and I and others are willing to put does in the freezer. the 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 problem is, is Michigan mentality is we are a very buck centric state. It's all about the buck. First person back to camp is you know, King so and so. You know, it's all about that social side of it. You know. Part of where I think guys struggle to make that change, though, is also the same thing on the social side. We're we're killing these bucks because we're more worried about what other people are going to think. You see uh, on yeah. social media, yes. it's not the biggest buck. Can't eat the horns. Yes. Blah blah blah. You know. So that's where the regulations come in, is because people don't want to make the change necessary. So you almost have to force the hand. Which I see that. I mean, they're just. That's been our thing, my thing forever is just, there's a lot of people that complain about the hunting in the state and would it be sweet to go out there and know I was going to probably see a doe with 130, 140, 150 inch buck running behind it? Yes. But I know it can happen anyways because of what the work that I've put into it and what I've found where I go. So I have no complaints about hunting in this state. And that's where it's always like a back and forth. I go all year, don't shoot a buck. I could have tagged out on bucks pretty quickly. They just weren't what I was willing to want to drag out of there, but I'd shoot a doe. Well, then I get seven does and now all of a sudden I'm a bad guy because I killed the whole dirt deer herd. I'm not going to see any deer next year because I killed every one of them. And it's, you're pretty much you're never going to have and this is a social media problem and giving a shit what people think about anything problem you're never going to make both sides happy like there's going to be someone on either side arguing it and i feel like in a way that's how people act towards the michigan dnr too i personally Mm -hmm. 
if I thought I could do a better job of managing Michigan, I would be applying for a job to work with the state of Michigan to try to make the changes. But I don't have that kind of knowledge. I don't have that in me. Animals are what I love. The woods is what I love, but I'm not that smart. But the DNR, let's say they put APRs across the state tomorrow. You're going to make how many people happy and how many people pissed off. Let's say tomorrow they say you only get one buck tag this year. You're going to make this group of them happy. You're going to make this group of them pissed off. There's no, is there a happy medium? So in my opinion, that's where the one buck comes into play, where one buck is a lot more uh, palatable for hunters to chew on. Um, something that was brought up in the Ram Center, uh, Chad Stewart brought it up too, and, and it makes sense. So our first-time hunters or youth hunters are exempt from the APR. Mm-hmm. But there's no exemption for the older crowd. It was something at the Ram Center that I was in full support is making a exemption for, say, the 65 and older or the 70 and older. Because the problem is, is so in 20, 2014, we had a really nice three-year-old eight-point walking around. I let him go. A couple other guys let him go. The neighbor opening day gun season had a guy on the property. And he ends up pulling the trigger on it, killing the buck. Buck came back on our place, congratulated him, you know, and he and he had said, you know, I get it. I finally get it. This is why you guys passed deer. The guy had only shot three deer in his life, or three bucks in his life uh, before that, and this one was his biggest. The next biggest he shot was a six-point. Mm-hmm. Well, in 2015, they found him in his tree stand dead from a massive heart attack on opening day of gun season. That was the last buck that he had shot. That's how I want to go. Oh, me too. But it it really sunk home because there could be that 75-year-old or 80-year-old boy that that actually musters up the strength and and wanders out, gets into a blind, and that six-point walks by or, you know, the spike walks by and he passes it because he has to and he doesn't make it another hunting season. I support APR because you can't – you can't – you can't make a, a regulation based on the exempt, you know, you had to base it on the norm, not on the, the what ifs or the potential, you know, minor what ifs. But it does make you sit and think like one buck would allow that boy to shoot his spike or shoot his six as his last buck, it, it, potentially, right? Yep. Um, and it does, it does hit home a little bit on that one. So, for me, that's why I've kind of shifted to where I'm just full APR and no one buck to I support both. I mean, ideally, I'd love to see an APR on a one buck, but that's way too restrictive. <laughs> um, but end of the day, we also had to take into consideration what's best for the herd, but we also have to look at the other guys, too. It's not just about what's best for our hunt. Yeah. And, and talking about antlerless, do you think it would help people decide to shoot more does if the doe tag price would drop? Yeah, that's a good one. I, I said it, I, I said it right to Chad, make the buck tags 40 bucks a piece, even hell, 50 bucks a piece, and drop the doe tags back down to five, 10 bucks a piece. You'll see a change. I you know, guys like still, it. People are still going to ta- buy the buck tag. They're still going to, you know, punch their buck tag. But, I mean, so you got a wife at home, you got kids at home, you know, if you were buying tags for everybody, 
that gets pretty freaking expensive. I said it, you know, to Chad Stewart. So for Rochelle and I to buy our 10 tags a piece just for antlerless, because we had, we knew we had to do a heavy harvest. $400. Or $400. Now you throw the combo <laughs> tag in both of them. Yeah. Or $480 in deep. <laughs> You know, and then I said to him, I said, so you want me to do this? So then he goes, well, you know, you can apply for the DMAP, which I did. Which is what? $10 a piece. I mean, what is that, though? What is that? Uh, deer, they're called the deer man- DMAP is Deer Management Assistant or Deer Management Assistance Permit. Is that uh, IE crop damage? It is. So crop damage is for the landowner, farmer, and it doesn't cost anything. And the biologist comes out says, yes, uh, you got crop damage. We're going to give you X amount. And you had to register, the, you know, you actually had to fill out a piece of paper with every single deer and hand the tags into, you know, tags back to the DNR. Under the DMAP, it's more for the hunter that's trying to reduce deer numbers. Um, we applied for 20 and we got it. DMAPs aren't for people that are going to go, oh, I want two tags or five tags. This are, These are designed for people that really need to bring doe densities down and it provides a cheaper way. But why can I buy them at 10 bucks? but you have to, as a public land guy who can't get a DMAP, have to pay the full price? I don't know. <laughs> you know? I, I've so, just been thinking about that for a while. Like, I'm paying the same price for a doe as I am a buck, and I feel like there was a time where it wasn't that way. Uh, there, it used to be, I believe, the doe tag was 5, and the buck tag was 10, yeah, and the buck tag went up price. to 20, and the doe tag went to 10, and now it's 2020. So, that's where you know you were talking about uh the dnr and if you you know get a job and stuff like that so it's a transparency issue that hunters have with the dnr the dnr have done a lot of shooting themselves in the foot to the eye of the hunter the hunters don't trust the dnr mm-hmm. and the and the tag increase on the antler list is one of those things so the dnr will tell you that they're managing for what's best for the herd they're not it, it, it's a smoke and mirror it's a money maker for them. It's a revenue thing. It's a business. They are they are managing for quantity, not quality. That's why you have such the liberal. You know they got rid of the antlerless quota, and you can take pretty much ten doe tags wherever you want to go in the, in the northern lower. Uh, you're not managing the herd for its best ability. You're you're managing to make money. The walleye fishery in the Saginaw Bay, another prime example. You know. 15 years ago, you could go out in the bay and you could still limit. You had to work for it, but you could limit out. But your smallest fish was going to be four or five pounds. And your biggest one, you know, were 10, 15. You'd get a trophy, you know, 16 pounder out there. Where now you go out, you limit out in 45 minutes, and the biggest fish you got is five pounds. Mm-hmm. You know, the salmon fishery, another another prime example. The alewife population crash on the west side of the state. They're just pumping kings in there because it is a money maker on the west side. They'll try to deny it, and there's no way to deny it. So, I mean, what do, you, what do you think that can really be done to change the? You know, we talked about the old school people how they hunted more for the food than they did for the antlers, and now we've moved into a lot of guys hunting for the antlers rather than just for sustenance and bringing food home. Back in the day. I've heard a lot of people say it. The older crew was hands off does. They did not want any of them shot. That was because of deer density at that time, right? Correct. So if they were shooting bucks for meat back then and no does, 
we've still carried on that mindset through through now of don't shoot the does. There's a lot of people still hands off the does. Don't shoot any of the does. If you shoot a doe, you're not going to see a buck. All this stuff. So, so how do we how do we lose the fact of hunting for food and move towards hunting for for bucks, but still keep the thought of leaving the does go? So again, that, that falls on the education side of it because you know Grandpa said don't shoot does. Dad said don't shoot does because like my dad in the seventies, you know. He literally grew up about eight miles from here, the way the crow flies. And he's like, you used to kick pheasants up everywhere. Now you don't see pheasants. Back then, if you seen a deer track or a deer, you were doing good. He goes, mm-hmm. now you walk through the same field and you're kicking deer after deer after deer out of that field. So the dynamics has changed, but the mentality hasn't. Because, again, the Michigan hunter does not do a very good job of educating themselves but also being involved. If more hunters were involved, the transparency of the DNR would be better because we could hold them accountable better. You can't hold a department or an entity accountable if you don't know. And that's the problem that Michigan hunters have. Uh, Mike hit it, you know, when he was on his uh, Wednesday Night Live. Mike Avery. By and far, the anti-crowd is far more organized, far more involved, and that is why we are getting pushed out because most hunters will rather have you and I fight for them instead of them going to fight for themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and the um, problem is that you and I, not you and I personally, but a lot of times it's two people loving the same sport, button heads with each other. Yeah. We both have the same goal in mind, just different routes to get there. Yeah. I but, kill everything. But, <laughs> you know, it, but it falls on that respect, right? So you and I have different backgrounds, different ways of doing things, but I respect your way and you respect my way. Yep. And that's where, especially with social media that we lost, because let's be honest, back in the day, there was no social media. You met face to face. You watched your words a lot more face to face than you do on social media. I agree. You know, <laughs> um, the other thing though, on the antler list, like with that shift though, is you have, because of our fascination with big bucks, you have guys out there that are strictly do not kill does because that's what brings the big boys in. You know, you have some of these big name hunters out there that kill big bucks consistently that say, don't touch the does. And they go and out of state tr- to do it. What's that? And they go out of state to do it. Well, <laughs> not no, not everybody. Like Guys do kill big boys in Michigan. And there is some truth to the Drury's do it, the Kiskies do it, uh, the Lakoskis do it, um, Grant Woods even does it. So you have your doe groups, your high-density does, and what you're doing is you're trying to put so many does in an area to where the bucks come to rut are so occupied with these does that they don't leave. Mm-hmm. You know, And when you have all these does, you have this, this ginormous range in age, so... Now your your older does are who come into estrus first, and then the mid ones come in second, and then the young ones come in third. So these bucks are just running themselves ragged on this section, chasing all these does. But the downfall to that that they won't say or they don't take into consideration because they're more worried about their own personal wants and needs is so the more that buck runs, the longer that rut goes, the later that rut goes, the higher your probability is of winter kill because the buck is running themselves ragged. The doe 
for the, the, the 24 to 36 hours she's in heat, she's running and then she stops and fills her belly. And if she goes and run her estrus again, she does that cycle for two or three days. And then she's back to shoving her face full of food where that buck is continuing to run. The other downfall of it is now your breeding comes later and later and later. So these fawns are giving birth to these deer, you know, their fawns in, instead of, you know, end of May, 1st of June, we're talking end of July, August, September. Yeah. So now our mortality and our fawn recruitment goes down because the whole breeding cycle is out of whack. But because people are more fascinated and more worried about their own personal wants and needs that they do not take the health of the herd into consideration. And by that, you're basically saying they want a big buck and nothing else. Correct. And that's the argument that we see all the time. And you, you see me get right back on them. I get so tired of hearing, and I know this isn't Illinois. I know this isn't Ohio. I know this isn't Iowa. But when people say there's no big bucks in this state and you got to go somewhere else to find them, that's crap. So you have, okay, you and I've had this debate and, I, and I'll still, <laughs> I'll still argue this. Your big buck is not a big buck. When you look at when you look at the overall picture of age, right? So oh, yeah. I and I said this, you're never we're never going to be Illinois, we're never gonna be Iowa, we're never gonna be southern Ohio when it comes to inches. We gotta stop looking at or portraying these other states on the inches side. Mm-hmm. We don't have the soil to do what those states do. But what those states do offer that Michigan doesn't is the amount of four and a half and older that are on the horizon. You go to Ohio, you go to Illinois, you go to Iowa, Kansas, parts of Wisconsin, the Dakotas, you know, Tennessee, their age structure, their age balance is a lot better. So your opportunities at the older deer are there. Now, when is I that say because this, of restrictions, hunter mentality, okay, to a degree. Uh, so there are some states, you know, Ohio's a one buck state, um, Indiana's a one buck state, Kansas is a one buck state, but Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa are multi buck states. But where their regulations come into play is their season lengths and weapons that you can use. Um, that does play a big role in that. Um, now Missouri had APRs, Pennsylvania has APRs, you know, so you can tie regulations to it, but it's a lot of it's a hunter mentality. Yeah. But going back to what I said, and, and, and when I say that, I don't mean it in a disrespectful manner, but for a lot of Michigan hunters that 120 inch is a big boy. It's a monster to them because that is truly the biggest buck they have ever seen. Mm-hmm. And in Michigan, that is a very respectable buck. 130, 140 is a very, very good buck for Michigan because of that mindset and that mentality. But if you look at the, the big picture, yep. get outside of Michigan, that is not a big buck. Right. I mean, I'm still happy chasing the ones. I didn't say I've killed a big buck, but there's some damn big ones that I know are out there. There it <laughs> so and, and that's the thing for you too, because you're doing the work and you're seeing, you know, the fruits of your labor. It's also for you, why am I gonna do all this work and put all this time in to go out and shoot a six point yeah. or a spike when I know these are out here? Yep. And that kills me too on on social media, you see it all the time. Well, I don't get it. The later the season goes, the less deer I have. So there's just not there's not that many deer out here. All these hunters are killing them. 
or I've sat this blind for this spot for 40 years and I'm not seeing deer like I used to. Maybe it's because you are putting too much pressure on your spot and that's why you're not seeing the deer. Mm-hmm. You know, I go on crop tours. I call them, you know, uh, crop tours where literally we drive around, we glass the fields, you know, scouting a three mile radius around this farm. Trail cameras are out, you know, physically scouting on the property, talking to the neighbors. You're doing it on public ground, trail cameras, pound in the ground, looking for a sign. Mm -hmm. So if you go to this spot and it's not that good, I got other spots to go to because I've done that scouting. Right. And that's where I think guys like you and I get in some trouble when it comes to the antlerless side. You're ridiculed because, oh, you're a public guy that's shooting all these does. You're killing (laughs) all the does. Oh, Elliot, you guys shot, you know. 60 deer or 68 deer you're murdering all the deer i don't see that many deer well no it's because we're doing the work and scouting and figuring out what we actually have you're the guy that's coming up on the weekends you don't see that so you because you're not seeing or experiencing you think that that's the case and it's really not people need to get outside that box do you think michigan has the potential to be a destination state 100 absolutely yes the whole state or just certain portions UP is a whole different animal because you have the CFL grounds getting absolutely raped on, on behalf of the economy and money. Um, What's the, the CFL? Water, uh, commercial forest land. Okay. Um, the weather doesn't help. Uh, the predation, yes, wolves get a lot of attention, but you also have higher bear densities now. Um, you got bobcat, you have mountain lion, coyotes. You know, there's a plethora of that. And the mismanagement by the DNR, I, I'm I'm on the side of of guys like Jordan Hoover. I don't think that we should have canceled the the ability to take antlerless on the archery tag or completely close off um, antlerless hunting abilities in the northern zone of the UP because these doe groups are larger are because of the commercial forestry land getting raped. Our wintering grounds are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. So now you're putting all this pressure on these wintering grounds. Now they can't sustain the herd that's there. So you have to reduce the herd unless you're going to fix the, the commercial forest land bull crap. But that comes just like fish have a bag limit. That's what you do with a quota system. Okay. Not everybody can shoot a doe or we're only going to allow X amount of tags that are for this area, but it's still there. You're still managing the ground. So until that part of the UP is fixed, the UP, no. Lower Peninsula, all the Lower Peninsula, absolutely. And and what do you honestly think is going to be the best route to make it that way? Do you want Michigan to become a, a, a state that people say, let's all pack up and go to Michigan for the weekend? Yes, I do. Yes, Why? I do. Because it ain't fair for me. It, it's, it, there's, there is that aspect on the economic side. But if Michigan's a destination, that means I don't have to go out of state. You know, so it's as much as it's advantageous for the out-of-state guys coming to Michigan, it's advantageous for you and I as well. Because it means Um, that they're coming here for a reason? Correct. You know, um, again, though, but we can't look at it on the inches side of things. We have to look at it on on the age side of things. I mean, um, where where is the healthiest point for the age class to be? I mean, is there a cutoff that hey, at this point they need to be gone? A does or bucks? To me, does more than bucks. 
Um, there's really no social science or I shouldn't say there's no biological science that says a four-year-old buck is better than a nine-year-old buck or a one-year-old buck is better than a 12-year-old buck. On the doe side of things, I look at it more on the density, the herd density control aspect of it. If the older does are pushing more doe fawns and you're trying to balance that herd, that's where you don't want that older age structure. But that, but there's a downfall or a caveat to it. If you're trying to increase your deer density, protecting those older does can help you increase your densities. So it, it, it's kind of a fine line there. But, I mean, the, the fastest way, in my opinion, the best and fastest way to make Michigan a destination state is one buck with an antler point restriction. And what would you, you want you, to see that antler point restriction be? Regional. If it's zone three, it's four four point APR. Zone two, three point APR. UP would be no spike. Um, but again, and that's based off Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is that way. It's one buck with an APR. I mean, in, uh, in the UP being a no spike zone, how many year and a half old deer is that really saving up there? Is it a vast so, majority of them are spikes? The UP right now is hunter choice. Um, where it's if you buy the one tag, you can shoot whatever you want. If you buy the combo, first one's no spike, second one has to have the four point. And they're protecting quite a bit of yearlings. There's certain areas where predominant harvest is three and a half and older. Uh, but you have to look at region though, or that region, you know, again, there's not a lot of ag up there. It's a lot, I mean, there's I guarantee you there are sections of the UP where a deer has never seen a human. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, versus down here, there's so much better food for them. So I mean, you can have two, you know, people say down here, you know, you, you've heard once a spike, always a spike. Mm -hmm. For down here, that's not really plausible. That's there not really some, plausible for anywhere, is it? Well, no, but you might get that four and a half or five and a half year old that up in the UP that may never get above six point or, you know, because it's not because the genetics are terrible. It's because that deer is getting its butt kicked in the wintertime. And there's not really good high quality food. God, you know how sexy that'd be though? A five year old six point just all oh, mass and oh man. <laughs> well, but mass isn't guaranteed with age though. Oh, I know, when, I know. You know, especially when you're looking at the poor food. But you know, uh, my buddy Cody. I mean, one of one of the. It's funny to say because he's younger than me, but he's one of my mentors. You know, I will I will say that that you know that Cody Bonner hands down is probably one of the best big buck killers I've ever met. Like I said on the other podcast, the dude, I swear to God, the dude's part deer. But uh, there was a deer that he called Lesnar and was named that because he was built like, like Brock Lesnar. That deer only scored, I think, 116 inches, but it was a nine-and-a-half-year-old buck. That buck field-dressed. At 260 pounds, field dressed at 260. So now you're talking, that's a 300-pound deer mm -hmm. live with. You know, that was a deer that had mass. I mean, like, you held this deer, and you're like, holy crap, is that heavy. You know, but he was he was barely an eight-point. He had big forks and little crab claws up front. They were like an inch-and-a-half crab claws. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was cool seeing literally, I mean, essentially a mainframe six-point, a giant mainframe six-point. See, that's one I would have had to let walk because I don't want to drag that thing a mile out of the woods. 
Yeah. Uh, you hey, know, here comes a spike. I'm taking that one instead. <laughs> you know, in and I'll admit, like, I'm lazier now than I used to be. You know, as the older I get, the football injuries catch up to you and all that. That's one thing I love about the farm and why I struggle to hunt public land like I used to because I shoot a deer, I go to the barn, I put the key in the tractor, I drive the tractor up to the deer, drop the loader, throw the deer in the loader, pick it up, and away I go. Yeah. Yeah, I can't do that. They they frown on me driving tractors through public land around here. <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> That's when the, the flashing lights get real pretty out there, though. <laughs> now, I wonder I wonder if it'd be legal if you got an ORV sticker put on it. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, the county I hunt just opened up ORV, like, on the, the two tracks and seasonal roads and stuff. Mm-hmm. None of the guys respect that. No. Give them an inch, they take a mile for sure. And And that's, you know that's that's michigan deer hunting though that's that's all across the board for hunting you know it's just it's an unfortunate mindset that that's grown it's a monster that was created and it's hard to get rid of Uh, one thing i know i've told you before kind of irritates me especially the one buck tag crowd is if you ask how many of those one buck tag supporters bought a combo tag and filled both tags there's a good number of them that still shot two bucks, but then cry want one buck tag. How did? Why should anybody listen to that conversation? It's, <laughs> hypocritical. it's, it's hypocritical. Well, so I got drugged into that. Well, you support one buck, but you bought a combo tag. You're right, I did. And since 2016, I filled both my buck tags on does. Oh, and absolutely, so, there's absolutely people that do that, but there is quite a few of them that fill both their buck tags on bucks and then get on and say, "Well, we need one buck tag." Like. You can go buy just one buck tag. So it falls under that rules for thee, but not for me, you yeah. know? And, but so, Rick and that's Whitmer. <laughs> God. Yeah. That, that, that's a, that's a rabbit hole that I really don't want to go back down. But the, the pro, so like with APR, right? There was a lot of people that, oh, we're all for APR. We're all for APR. Then they get the survey, and it's time to put the pen to paper, and then they go, well, I don't know if I really want to restrict myself. And then they vote no. They'll tell you they want it, but then they vote no. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the one-buck crowd. They tell you they want it, but then they don't follow it themselves. Yep. Yep. Well, Elliot, tell me a little bit about your farm, Lookout Hill Farms. I know I've seen you uh, – offering some stuff on there food plot stuff what do you got going on over there so lookout hill farms is it's kind of a combination between uh, my wife and i she does predominantly the the animal side of it we have chickens we're going to be getting cows here chickens gosh you guys are sitting on a gold mine you know (laughs) i laugh because everybody's like oh you know we got a couple chickens, but they're not laying eggs like they used to. We got 19 hens, and we're pushing 14, 12 to 14 eggs a day. And then I'm sitting there looking <laughs> at, well, a dozen eggs are $5 on the shelf. Man, mm-hmm. I am sitting on an absolute gold mine, <laughs> you know. Uh, but so Lookout Hill Farms uh, is for that. But I also, well, we also sell uh, food plot seed. We sell uh, exclusively Northwoods Whitetail Seed. Um we're out of uh, 
Clifford, Kingston area, uh, southeast Tuscola County, uh, pretty much servicing all of the thumb for uh, food plot seed. Yeah, and if, if anybody has any questions, Elliot has usually been pretty open talking about this kind of stuff, and uh, like we kind of went over, he's been the only one that I'll really converse about this for because, as you can see, we can, we can have totally different views, but we're not sitting here just bitching back and forth to each other. Um, I guess for me, it's still going to take a lot of talking into either side, and... I still probably will go to the let people do what they want to do and everybody else do it how you want to do. But I appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about the reasons for either side of them and kind of how that should change the way hunting in Michigan is. So the biggest thing that, you know, I, I want people to, to really look at in this whether you're for APRs, whether you're for one buck, whether you're one buck plus APR, earn a buck, my tag, my choice. End of the day, we have to be about the resource first, hunter needs second. And that's the problem that we're facing is we are at a, at a crossroads right now when it comes to deer. Densities are deer herd and the future and sustainability of what we love. We have to start taking the needs of the wildlife into the equation and start focusing on that because there is going to be a point where nature takes over and nature will put it back in balance, whether we like it or not, whether it's another outbreak of EHD, whether it's CWD, whatever it may be, nature's going to handle itself. So if we want to sustain our way of life, we have to start doing this. Turkeys is a prime example. So turkey and deer in the winter feed on the same things. They love woody browse, the buds that are on the, on the on the undergrowth. Deer can reach higher up than what turkeys can. Well, the problem is, is there's such high deer densities that they're literally going through the woods, eating any available woody browse that is there. So now the turkeys don't have as much. The other aspect is, you know, humans and their park effect you know, wood blocks. Oh, the trees look pretty and the, and the woods are pretty, but they're biological deserts for wildlife. Mm -hmm. So if we have these biological deserts and still allow the deer densities to go through the roof, there's no food uh, or there's not much available food for rabbits. There's not much available food for turkeys, for, for grouse, for woodcock, other, you know, other animals, wildlife that is in the ecosystem, whether we hunt them or not, we have to start looking for, what's best for the ecosystem, what's best for the sustainability of the wildlife, and then put our needs after that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, during November, I shot two two does with the gun, and uh, I think I had messaged you about that. Like, November 20th, there is no reason at all that I should have 10 does in front of me and not a single antler anywhere even coming sniffing around 10 does November 20th. It doesn't make any sense especially in public. Yeah. Yeah. But that's one thing that we've also, I was going to ask this earlier when is there truth or is it false that having more does on your property is going to attract more bucks or should you, as I think I have seen lowering the doe population will increase your chances of seeing more of a rut because they actually have to get up and move for it. So a more balanced 
sex ratio in your herd will make a more intense rut. There are studies that prove it. It's biologically there. 100% it'll make for a far more intense rut. Now, as far as increasing your visual sightings or camera sightings of bucks, it is a balance. It is a very fine line because too many does can make you see less bucks because these do the bucks don't want to tolerate the does. They don't want to deal with the does on a normal basis outside the rut. But the more does you get, the more space they take up, which pushes your bucks further into your neighbors or another chunk of state land. So you have to have that balance where you have enough does to keep them busy, but not enough does you push them out. Mm -hmm. But to your point, if you have this big doe group that's controlling this, say, 10 to 20 acre section, right? They just dominate it. No other doe groups come in that buck ain't going to leave because that doe group's going to have multiple does going into estrus uh, around the same time. So essentially to your point, he is getting up and moving. He's just not leaving that doe group. Mm -hmm. So when you have less does, now you're forcing him to go from doe group to go doe group to doe group to doe group. So your potential of seeing him on his feet are better with your lower densities. Yep. And that's what I felt like on my lease. Cause for the first three years, I think it was, we didn't see a buck one. We just kept on stacking does. And then finally that last year I was there pretty much. If you saw a deer, there was a 50, 50 chance. It was going to have antlers on its head. And then I lost my lease. So I'm like, well, I got it to where I wanted it to be. <laughs> yep. And, and, but see, and that's where doe management, doe management is almost as intense and, and playing as what buck management is because you have to know when too many is too many, when not enough is not enough. You have to know your doe groups. You have to know your age structure. You're, you're taking all that in, and, and then it's it's calculated. I mean, the the hows and the whys of what does that Rochelle and I took was precise. We were just precision killers. We had specific deer we were going to kill and specific deer we weren't going to kill. And we went out, and that's what we did. And how did you decide that? It's uh, that would be a whole nother podcast in itself because it is very detailed. Um, but essentially, I'm looking at everybody's, you know. So you hear everybody, oh, if you shoot them in the late season, then they're not going to drop their fawns, and you're not going to, they're not, they're pregnant, and they won't give birth to their fawns. Well, if I kill them in October, they ain't going to get bred anyway. <laughs> That's kind of what I said. But well, is there a right time to kill it? That I don't know. There is. Um. Every time is the right time. <laughs> but I tend to wait to the late season because I know my neighbors, there are there are some of us that are really good at killing does, but the vast majority don't kill enough does. And being that I'm, a, I'm the last food source going into winter, I know these deer migrate to me. So if I'm going to make a actual significant imprint on the overall doe population, not only my does, but surrounding does, I had to wait for that migration to get to me. So I'm choosing late season because based not because of my own needs, but because I know what these deer do every year, same time. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking that into consideration. 
I am taking into consideration what my neighbors do. They can call me nosy. They can, you know, worry about myself and not my neighbors, but I do. I know what, I know what a lot of my neighbors are doing and how they're doing things. So I'm taking that into consideration. Um, I'm taking into consideration where my doe groups are betting, where my neighbors are coming from, who's coming out of my place. Uh, There's so much information that I am sucking in and, and calculating for the hows and the whys. So if you could take a guess and maybe it's not even a guess, maybe, you know, the information, how many, you said you have how many acres? 118. How many does do you think were living on your farm? So I know as of right now, I, well, I shouldn't say right now because the deer are a little scattered because of what we just got done doing. Um, but going into this deer season, I had six resident doe groups on the farm the smallest one had three adult does and their fawns the biggest one had 14 adult does and their fawns and then if all those does are on your property how many bucks do you think called your property home so taking outside of the rut going into season i had Actually staying on the farm, I had maybe three. And do you think that would increase if some of those does were gone? I've already seen it. Okay, so, so I mean, you taking out some of the does just makes more room for a buck? Yep. Okay. So, be, because right now, what all that buck wants to do is try to survive winter. Yep. So, now, I by taking those does, I provide a better opportunity at better thermal cover, winter cover for that buck to hide in. And now instead of him traveling 600 yards to the food source, he's only traveling 200 yards to the food source. And he has access to better quality food than what he did on some of my neighbor's ground. Gotcha. I gotcha. All right. Well, Elliot, do you have anything that you may have left out or we didn't get to that you want to mention? Um, It's something that I've always said is just get involved. Be be the hunter you want to be, but stop waiting for the DNR. Stop blaming the DNR. Stop blaming your neighbor. Stop blaming other people for your hunt. If you want a better hunt, it starts with you. Start with habitat improvements. Start with education, whatever it may be. But the other aspect is be involved with regulations. Be involved with the rules because the first opportunity the anti-hunters get, they are going to take this away from us and we'll never get it back. Mm-hmm. you can't wait for people to do it for you you have to do it for yourself i agree all right and with that everybody if uh if you need any more information if you need any what'd you say northwoods whitetail yep northwoods whitetail seed if you need any of that look at uh, elliot's page it's lookout hill farms on facebook elliot thank you so much for taking the time tonight to talk not a problem brother I appreciate it. And uh, everybody that's listened this far, thank you so much. And if you didn't catch Elliot's episode on the Generations to Hunt podcast with Joe Davis, uh, go check that one out too. A lot of information. Uh, We basically, I knew I was going to try to come at this a little different. Uh, Me and Joe have talked, me and Elliot have talked. And I just have a different way of attacking this kind of a a conversation. (laughs) This was more of the camp talk type situation where Joe's was a lot more of the meat and potatoes of the hounds and the process of one buck APR. And I think that, you know, 
this kind of gets people's feet wet and that one kind of dives into the rules and regulations yeah. you know and but that's what's needed the information yeah. is what's needed so people can make the best decision that they feel possible yeah yeah so if you haven't go check out that episode generations to hunt everybody thank you so much for listening thank you once again elliot and we will talk to you all next week on the overdrive outdoors podcast